1: Hello there and happy holidays. As you know, I've been playing the ghost of Christmas past here, and I have one more alternative political history to play out. This episode, what if Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia did not die before the 2016 election It was a surprise when he died in February of that year? Would Donald Trump still have been elected by conservatives who were worried about filling the seat? My guys, today is someone with a little skin in this game. is columnist David French, senior editor at The Dispatch. And for a brief period, he's someone who considered his own run for president in 2016, or at least had people trying to talk him to it. So, Mr. French, uh, welcome uh, welcome to our little uh, thought
2: experiment here. Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me. And it's a fascinating thought experiment.
1: Yeah, look, I've been doing this. Uh, the first episode we did was, uh, what if Bill Clinton had resigned in 98? Yeah. And we go through, and we played it all the way through 04, including 9-11, you know, and noting that that would have been... Nine straight years of Democratic intelligence. We, we we sort of assumed it might have gotten more politicized due to that. It, anyway, went through some interesting scenarios there because we assumed Gore won in 2000 as a re-elected president, right? In that scenario. So anyway, it the point is, there's always there's multiple things that suddenly are impacted when you can change one event. And I don't think I think when a lot of people talk about 2016, they don't fully appreciate the impact. On on the at the time the skeptical base uh, on that open Supreme Court seat, David, you put it in context.
2: Yeah, well, I I think a couple of things in play. One is you you could argue that two branches of government were in play in the in the are in the uh, presidential election. You couldn't just argue it. Two branches of government were in play <laughs> in right. in the in the presidential election, and it wasn't just that. If you're gonna even use the term just uh it was that they were in play with the republicans who tend to care more about the court now you may not be able to tell that from say twitter i mean twitter everybody seems to be you know screaming at at turning it to 11 all the time about all of the issues but as a general matter there are more republicans who vote the court and vote the court primarily Um, then there are Democrats who vote the court and vote the court primarily. So you had the two branches of government in play. You had the vote the court um, element that's stronger on the Republican side anyway. And the other thing is it was Scalia. So so it was the legend. It was the guy that if you were even just sort of a casual, a a more casual conservative, um, you knew him. You knew who Reagan is to
1: politics for most living conservatives under the age of 70. Scalia is for legal
2: conservatives. Right. right? Exactly. Exactly. So the sense it's really hard to kind of uh, sum up the full sense of the scale of the panic because it was. And then it wasn't just that Scalia was going to was gone. It was that Hillary Clinton would replace Scalia.
1: And then not this, even Barack Obama, not, not even Joe Biden, exactly. Hillary Clinton, Hillary, Clinton. somebody that has been demonized on the right for decades.
2: Oh, yes. yeah. Yeah. So you're coming up on a quarter century, really, of of mm-hmm. opposition to Hillary Clinton at this point. I mean, you're getting right. You know, so she was probably of, of all of the Democrats. She was the most despised Democrat by Republicans.
1: The infamous flight, infamous, famous, no matter your point of view. Mm-hmm. Flight 93 essay. Right. Um, that was served as in many cases the sort of the rationale or the rallying cry for the anti trump conservatives to stick with Trump. Um, does that get traction without without Scalia seat being open
2: so uh, here's where here's where i I wonder about the counterfactual in this sense because I do think it does I do think it does without Scalia because hill because Hillary was such was such a an object of fear and scorn. Um this is a person and you know it's interesting you talk to I talk to my Democratic friends, especially my Democratic friends who don't live, say, in Tennessee, where I live, and even to this day, they don't fully grasp the extent to which people disliked Hillary Clinton. Uh, they don't quite get it.
1: I try I try it's funny you say that. I remember, and look, I, I've I've said this Internally, I've said it externally during that campaign. You know, we—I would say to folks—and I think there was this, there was sort of a, a weird pressure. I'd say, you know, there's only one candidate where people are comfortable putting a prison cell on their front yard, right? To demean, and I don't think we fully appreciate. I mean, imagine feeling comfortable doing that in your community, right? Does that not explain, like? People would be like, "Why?" you know, it, it, and I feel like we under, I always said this, I think we undercovered that aspect of the campaign. We covered a lot of things having to do with Hillary Clinton. I don't think we fully covered and explained very well the deep seated hatred there was of her. I mean, again, you're willing to put
2: this on your front yard. Yeah. Well, in the, even going back to the 1990s and especially in sort of more religious conservative circles, Hillary was considered more of a villain than Bill. So, because they were, why was that? You know, she's a believer, and right?
1: She's a believer. Like, like she, Bill Clinton can preach. She believes. You know what I mean? Like, she has her own prayer group. This is a, uh, this is a very, I think, deep woman of faith. M- more so than you've seen. You know, uh, uh, they. I think that would shock some
2: people. Bill had that cultural Baptist side to him. He. Yeah and and look if you've been in southern baptist churches the lovable rogue is a character like the guy who just keeps messing up it's usually the preacher <laughs> it can be it can be <laughs> the guy who just keeps messing up you know yeah. but other people like them hillary hillary hit all of the cultural hot buttons you know the back and forth on the name uh, on whether she was taking Bill's name, the, I'm not right. a stand by your man. So it wasn't, you know, Bill, as much as Bill's corruption and Bill's infidelity drove people crazy, he never completely lost that connection with the, like with the average guy as evidenced by the, I mean, the average Christian mm-hmm. guy as evidenced by the fact right. he carried Southern States, right? Right. Um, Even in a second term, right? Hillary never had that connection,
1: never had it. All right, let's play out this scenario here, because I guess then the question is, it sounds like you don't, sounds like you think, regardless of who the Republican nominee was against Hillary Clinton, there would have been a Flight 93-like rallying cry, right? Regardless yes. of Scalia here. Yes. So I guess the real question is, Is it? E- would it have been easier to find an alternative to Trump had Scalia lived? And, and I guess let's start, let's go down that path.
2: Well, you know, for a time, the single best argument against Trump, uh, against Trump was that he, he was not the guy to choose the Scalia replacement. So that's why he did this thing that people had not really done before, which is put out the list. So mm. he puts out a list where if you're somebody who's in the know about, um, you know, the Fed Sox judges out there. You're impressed by the list. You like the list, but then the argument becomes: Well, can you trust him to pick from the list? So, in a lot of ways, for a long time, the the best argument against Trump was of this sort of menu of Republican candidates. He's the least qualified to select the Scalia replacement. The least trustworthy. He's the one who yeah. once mused that his sister, for example, would be a great justice. So that was a, an effective argument against him. But again. Chuck, the interesting thing about all of the 2016 counterfactuals is we're not talking about moving a lot of people here. We're, we're, we're talking- Right, it
1: wouldn't have been much, right? Right,
2: exactly. So well, I
1: guess it gets at to the evangelicals, the issue of whether evangelicals could stomach supporting Trump. The Scalia opening m- made the made the case easier to make. And I guess the question is, what would have the conversation have been like in the, with evangelical voters without having this, the threat the the seeing the threat, right? Yeah, the open seat, you could see it, you know. And 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 and, and by the way, if Scalia's living, Scalia's, you know, Scalia is living, Scalia's—you know—there were four or five pe- people on the court at that time that that were hitting their actuary tables, right? You know what I mean? Like it wasn't just him,
2: right? Exactly. And and going into it, you're looking—if uh, you had to choose amongst all the justices as to who might leave the court, it might have been Ginsburg as number one possibility of leaving the court and having a Hillary Clinton replace Ginsburg is not a cultural emergency in the same way. Right. Yeah. I, you know, I, you're, you're talking about kind of a perfect storm here. And if you have any element of the storm, that's decreased <laughs> any piece of it, does that right. make the 50,000 vote difference here, the 30,000 vote difference there? And I think, yes, I mean, I you you can go back and you can look at any number of factors. I mean, does if there's not another Comey letter, <laughs> you know
1: right oh, no, I know I mean that's going to be the one people on the left say to me, why didn't you do that and it's like, yeah, I think we all kind of understand that though right like, the reason i'm i'm the reason this is the one butterfly flap that I'd like to change is because I think it i'm curious to because it really it it really sort of it it drove Trump to be somebody that I don't think he planned on being. It changed his his desire to win the nomination and his fear that he wasn't going to be trusted on this. Changed his focus. Like I don't know if he becomes this champion of the of a uh, of the evangelical world. uh, You know, and there's sort of we've gone through this multiple worlds of the evangelical world. You know, the the Falwell wing type of people. He gravitated more in that direction. Would
2: that have happened without the Scalia opening? So here's where I think that Scalia opening. Here's the cycle that comes in. Here's one thing that I feel really pretty darn confident about, and that is the bond that Trump formed almost immediately with Republican voters is directly related to this cycle, which was despair when Scalia dies, unbelievably unexpected burst of hope when Trump wins, because... I could see it happen in real time here in in Red America was when he won unexpectedly and he beat not just any Democrat, but he beat Hillary Clinton. He slayed the dragon. The bond with him was unbelievable. And then the vindication when he nominates Gorsuch. So Mm -hmm. see, haters, he did do. So it was from the cycle from despair to hope to vindication. And then by that time, this sort of marriage is is you know fully consummated so to speak yeah. <laughs> and and without that Scalia vacancy you know number 1 does he win very very much open to debate super open debate that he wins and do, and if he doesn't win well then the republican party is just fundamentally different and by by 2017 2018 than it was just Really profoundly different because people forget how much the Trump skeptical side was right. ready to pounce, <laughs> so to speak. Uh, right. Was was ready to say, "Look, you know, w- we and and not the never Trump." Uh, the Trump skeptical, the never Trump were already sort of being read out of the story. It was the Trump skeptical. Mm -hmm. The I've held my nose. I did what I was supposed to do. I supported this guy. You led us to destruction.
1: Somebody we would have, somebody we would have said Mike Lee was the avatar for four years ago. Right. Exactly. Not this version of Mike Lee, but the Mike Lee of four years ago. Exactly. And you can
2: think of any number of people, you know, Ted Cruz, who um, famously refused to endorse at the convention itself. I mean, So you would have had a number of people sort of waiting in the wings to say, you, you screwed up. This was ridiculous and turning to the party and saying, we need to reform the rules that allowed this to happen.
1: Well, let me, let me, let me interrupt you here. What if Trump's first pick had been Harriet Myers?
2: (laughs) Well, again, you would have had this vindicate. And for those that don't remember who
1: Harriet Myers is real quick, that was George W. Bush nominated her for the Supreme Court uh, until it. Didn't go well. Conservatives panicked. And then we got a lead up, if I'm not mistaken. Well, right.
2: yeah. Any any nomination that would have been off list, any nomination that would have been off list mm-hmm. would have triggered an enormous backlash um, amongst Trump skeptics, an enormous sense of other of vindication. See, we told you we couldn't trust him. And mm-hmm. so any other nomination off list. So. In many ways, if he had one ounce of political savvy and he has more than one ounce of political savvy, he knew he was he was going to have to go from the list.
1: It's interesting. This has gone into a direction I didn't fully expect, but I sort of like where we've ended up because it really did. The Scalia seat changed Trump more than it changed the electorate.
2: It did. And, you know, what the Scalia seat did is it locked him into it just absolutely locked him into judges as his main legacy. That and it was this, it was the huge, super highway, obvious um, way to drive straight into evangelicals' hearts was through the judiciary. Because another thing that people don't realize if you're not sort of in this world is the reason why judges are such a big deal. Because it is seen as sort of there's sort of a kind of a popular history of the last 30, 40 years, which goes something like it's all the judges' fault. So, Roe oh. is judge-made law. The ending of gotcha. school prayer, judge-made law. Um, the you can't blame Congress. It's all been
1: done. In, it's all been done based on judges. It's all for, been, been judges.
2: Yeah. It's all been judges. And so, if you want to fix America, you got to mm-hmm. fix the court. And so, in many ways, for a lot of voters, and this is why I said there are more voters who are all into judges there than there are. more Republican voters all into judges than there are Democrats all into judges. Fixing America can't kick, fixing America, saving America cannot happen without the court. It was the court that broke America. Mm
1: -hmm. Let me pause there. We'll be right back after a quick break with our alternative history on Scalia and Trump. You're listening to the Chuck Toddcast from Meet the Press. So you were um, in this, I don't want to use the word cabal in that negative (laughs) tone, but you were among this group of people looking for an alternative to Trump. What would that conversation have, how would that have changed without the the Scalia opening?
2: Well, you know, I think one thing that it does is it made, it would have, so the Flight 93 essay would have gained traction for sure, not as much traction not as much traction because then what your argument is is that so so essentially what you're talking about is a, a huge chunk of americans believing it's the end of america if hillary loses now they ran back that argument again in 2020 it's the end of america uh or it's the end of america if hillary wins they ran back the argument in 2020 it's the end of america if Biden Biden, wins if uh,
1: Trump wins re-election or something or whatever but well and i would argue that the Democratic campaign essentially
2: became a a Flight 93 version in 2020. Totally, totally. And so, it, you know, the question I have in my mind, and in the dynamic that I think that it starts to exist, is whoever has the better Flight 93 argument, Jesus, <laughs> tends to make. Isn't that, that how
1: you know your democracy is teetering on the edge? Yeah. Is if it takes an argument like, like that's like each each side has to make the end of the world argument. Yeah, exactly.
2: But the problem is, the end of the world argument just would have been a lot weaker with one branch and and again you know the hillary dynamic really 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 motivated the republican base but the republican base as we know wasn't quite big enough he had to be able to pull in some voters who had voted for obama before and mm. does he do that i don't know that the obama to trump voters were talking were thinking about the court that much um I, I So it's a really interesting counterfa- counterfactual because it was so close that even a few, I think you, what you would have had is a few more people who were very skeptical of Trump, mm-hmm. but knew the court was at stake. There would have been a few more people who held their nose in 2016 who would not hold their nose in uh. You know, who would not have held their nose and that Mm -hmm. probably would have been enough. (laughs) It probably would have. Um, and then we, you know, we're off to the races on what happens if Hillary Clinton had won, what happens if Hillary Clinton is president during the pandemic, which is really the key. That's really the key question, I think, uh, for that, what happens after, um, what happens if Hillary is president? And I think the pandemic then overshadows virtually everything.
1: By the way, do you think in 50 years, we'll say the pandemic took down two presidents?
2: <laughs> I, if if it would look like it as of now.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, I, I, I don't know what life is good. I don't know how people are going to react politically to those in charge after the pandemic's truly behind us? Yes. Like, will they look at it and say, I don't want to think about it ever again, which is what happened after the 1918, 17, 18, 19, basically, you know, it's sort of like, I don't want to look backwards. Yeah. We're looking, at, we're looking forward. Um, or is there going to be some retribution? And I think it all depends on the state of the economy,
2: probably. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think, the, but the one thing that I, I, I know is that the honeymoon period, on pandemic response is over and has been over for a long time. So, you know, we had this period of time where really, you know, just talking to regular folks, they weren't blaming politicians. They were blaming a disease and they, they felt like they were, they were victims of this, you know, once in a century um, just this unanticipated once in a century calamity. That's all changed now that's all changed now. Now it is, we've had enough time and wherever you stand on it, whether you're sort of a, you know, going back to the, a David Leonhard piece in the New York Times where he, he said, look, by this point, here's what we know. Americans in blue America tend to overestimate the danger of COVID. Americans in yeah. red America tend to underestimate the danger of COVID. So wherever you're in overestimate or underestimate land or world, you're, you're now t- finding fault all over the place with everybody. Right. Right, And, you know, but I think this was the most easy to anticipate uh, thing when Biden was sworn in, if you were going to look at his legacy, it was actually not going to be tied to any specific government program. It was going to be tied to how COVID. did he get us out of the pandemic? Yeah. That I, look,
1: it. I, it's, a, it's a thing we said on the first day of his presidency. As yeah. COVID goes, so goes his presidency. Yeah. And now it's been a rocky year because COVID has been a rocky year. Let me um, let me go back to our 2016 thought experiment and ask a separate question that in hindsight, is there anything that could have been done better to stop Trump inside the Republican Party or or <laughs> it was just, never, you know, there yeah. was no scenario that was going to there was no scenario, I guess, if Access Hollywood happened before the convention. That would have been maybe the if the Access Hollywood tape shows up before the convention and you actually have a mechanism to change
2: maybe. way
1: before the convention.
2: I mean, I think if Access Hollywood shows up before he clinches, um, you needed
1: you needed that for the Indiana primary that first week in May type of thing where you could change the change the trajectory.
2: Maybe earlier, <laughs> to be honest. Oh wow! Okay. I mean, I do I think that there is something that could have been done differently. Yeah, a hundred percent. I I I don't think. The rise of Trump was some sort of historic inevitability. I mean, heck, by the time he clinched, he had the smallest share of the primary vote of any presidential candidate in the modern primary era. Um, Look, I think there's a there's a pretty if you go back and you unwind the tape of of 2016, moving into late 2015, there were some of us jumping up and down and saying, why aren't you going after this guy? Because essentially, what's happening is, oh, now
1: the other what if scenario: what if Jeb Bush had spent his money attacking Trump in in twenty in the fall of twenty fifteen instead of Marco Rubio? Uh, of Marco Rubio. That's yeah. a
2: great counterfactual. What if Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz had stepped up and turned der- their fire directly on Trump? Chuck, I'm sure you remember the one debate where they were hammering him and hammering him, and Corey Lewandowski yeah. broke the rules in the first commercial break to get up on the stage to calm Trump down because he was really saw that he was about to crack. Yeah. Yeah. And so people forget that Republican candidates spent much of the primary season waiting for Trump to implode all on his own and then being there to catch his supporters. I mean, this was the Ted Cruz.
1: Isn't this the tale of every anti-Trump Republican? Let's I, I want to fast forward to a what if I'm going to do in 10 years, I bet, which uh-huh. is what if Mitch McConnell had voted to impeach? Um, yeah. You know, I'll, I will wait. I'll wait till after Trump's second term to do that. The reason I say it is that I feel like this has been the constant, the constant decision making, which is I'm going to be here when Trump falls. This will do Trump in. I don't have to. Everybody thinks they don't have to get their hands dirty to get rid of Trump. And I keep trying to say, no, Mitch McConnell. You're gonna to have to get your hands dirty. Darth Vader had to kill the emperor. <laughs> okay. It, it wasn't gonna be Luke, right? And it wasn't gonna be Han Solo. It had to be Darth Vader.
2: The the constant of the Trump era is a decision-making process that goes something like this. He's finally gone too far, so now I don't <laughs> have to do anything. That's yeah. been the constant. I mean, yeah. even after January 6th, he's finally gone too far. And, you know. There were, what, seven? Lindsey or five, Graham, enough is enough, en- I'm out. <laughs> enough is enough. Until I'm harassed at the airport. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So it's all, it's going back, it goes back to the John McCain insult. He's yeah. gone too far. I don't have to do anything. I remember I was at- a You know, the RNC put out a statement. Yeah. I'm Condemning I, Trump for doing this. at the Access time. Hollywood, he's gone too far. I mean, you know, it, I remember I was at a gathering of conservatives at when the McCain statement came out. And I, I remember thinking, you know, look, we've all had our, you know, many of us have had our differences with McCain, but come on. And then I saw people when the news of it came out who cheered in the room at Trump's insult to John McCain. And I remember thinking, Houston, we've Uh-oh. got a problem here. Right. And, right. and so, you know, we constantly had this dynamic of who's going to actually step up and beat Trump because there is no line that he can cross that will cause him to beat himself. And th- if there is anything that is now known to be true, <laughs>
1: yep. it is that. Well, that's why I find Mitch McConnell suddenly being interested in what they're coming up with on January 6th. And, I, and you're like, that's the classic screaming at the TV. Then why did you not want the bicameral bipartisan investigation, right?
2: Well, now, you know, there's but, this sort of, some people will say, maybe Trump will be indicted. Oh,
1: here we go. You know, again, mm-hmm. hopefully somebody else does the dirty work. Somebody else. Oh, maybe it'll be that guy, Cy Vance. Maybe it'll be Letitia James. Maybe it'll be Merrick Garland. You're like, has anybody
2: decided to maybe pick up a shovel and see if they can do their own work? <laughs> well, and the thing is, what they've now seen in, in in a weird way, people are now, even after January 6th, less likely to try to step up than they were even four to five years ago because they've seen what happens to those people who do right. have some courage and stand up? The way they have to live under police protection, for example, the way yep. they're ostracized by friends and neighbors, the way they have sort of no more future in the Republican Party. So you now don't just have one cautionary tale or two cautionary yeah. tales, you have 10 or 15 cautionary tales. So it really, so now we have that collection act, uh, action problem, which is, if one or two or three people stand up, or even, what was it, seven senators who stood up, right? they face, they suffer, they suffer. Now, if a critical mass stands up, well, then there's too many people to be singled out. But right. still, they're not willing to do it, even after January 6th. I mean, they have eyes, they can see First Baptist Church Dallas, where this line snakes out of the church for you know three hours before the service. And- the thunderous applause and adulation in that church last Sunday. People see it. They they see the threats and they see the applause yeah. and they don't want to be the guy who loses the applause and gains the threats. That's that's what they don't want to be.
1: Well, uh, David French, this is why I enjoyed, uh, I've enjoyed doing this series. And, and it's also, it's nice to not, go where you expect it to go. (laughs) And I do think the most interest that the most important takeaway I have here is Scalia changed Trump. Yeah. That that's really, that's the conclusion I feel like we've come to here. It's Trump realized where he had, who he had to make his base in order to pull this off.
2: It gave him the roadmap. It gave him the roadmap and it paid off for him. It absolutely paid off and And it's still paying. It's still paying. That bond is still there. David French,
1: I appreciate you doing this. I know it's the holidays. We're all jamming up, especially when you're in the content creation business. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I imagine you are jamming. So thanks for uh, spending a little time helping us create some content.
2: Yeah. Thanks Thanks for having me, Chuck. I enjoyed
1: it. You've been listening to the Chuck Podcast for Meet the Press. Today's episode was produced by Justice Gopin Green and Matt Rivera. John Reese is our executive producer, and our theme music is composed by Spoke Media. We hope you enjoyed this special series. If you've enjoyed this series as much as we have enjoyed making it, let us know on Twitter and Facebook. We'd love to hear your ideas for more alternative histories. Remember, one event to change a series of of events. We'll be back next year with new episodes of the Chuck Podcast. Until then, have a safe and happy evening.